Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Huckberry. Huckberry is my favorite place to shop online. Everything from clothing, they got stuff for your everyday carry, camping gear, things for your house like furniture and even like art. You name it, they've got it and they handpick all this stuff to feature in their store. Go check it out at huckberry.com. And if you want to see some of the things I've purchased from Huckberry over the years, go to aom.is slash aomhuck. And if it's your first time purchasing, use code ART15 at checkout and you'll save 15% off your first purchase. Again, aom.is is slash AOM Huck and then code ART15 to save 15% off your first purchase. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Well, today we're talking mating intelligence. What is mating intelligence, you might be asking? Well, it's basically the skills and know-how that you need to have in order to successfully navigate romantic uh, relationships. And our guests today have recently published a book on this topic. Uh, They are two psychologists, Dr. Glenn Gear and Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, and their book is Mating Intelligence Unleashed, The Role of the Mind in Sex, Dating, and Love. And we're going to talk about the research that they highlight in their book that shows what men and women find attractive in in one another and um, what you can do to be more attractive to someone in, in the op- of the opposite sex and the surprising thing is it's it's there's more to it than physical attractiveness and we're going to talk about those things so listen in all right scott glenn thank you so much for joining us on the art of manliness podcast yeah thanks for having us brett yeah all right so uh glenn this this question's for you um Let's start off talking, what is mating intelligence? Because I've heard of, you know, emotional intelligence, and then I'm starting to hear about social intelligence um, and the different skills and knowledges that constitute that sort of intelligence. But what skills and knowledge constitute mating intelligence? Okay, well, I think it's a, a very good beginning question. It really speaks to sort of what we're doing with this book and what, what the idea is about. Um, when you look at the history of intelligence research for A long time, it was really just about cognitive processes, so things like math ability, um, verbal abilities, reading comprehension, um, complex problem-solving kinds of things. And at at some point, I'd say maybe in about the the 60s or 70s, people started looking at different kinds of intelligence. There's a lot more to who we are than just our cognitive processing. Um, So there was a movement by several folks at, at that point, and... When I was a graduate student at University of New Hampshire in the 1990s, I worked with Jack Mayer. Jack, along with Peter Salovey, who's at, at Yale, 
created the idea of emotional intelligence, which um, became a huge idea in psychology and it really captivated people, partly because it's a great idea, partly because it underscores how important emotions are for us, and partly because it made people who were good people who were good at doing stuff but never did well on intelligence tests say, you know what, maybe it doesn't matter that much. Maybe my emotional intelligence or my ability to get along with others is really the, the core core element of my success. Maybe that's what I should be cultivating in myself. So I did research on that with, with Jack years ago, and then I got very interested in evolutionary psychology and relationships from an evolutionary perspective, which we call human mating, um, pretty much looking at relationships the way that a biologist would look at um, mating behaviors in the, in the natural world and in, in non-human species. And research on human mating has really become huge. So we understand what are the causes of physical attractiveness, what are the causes of jealousy, um, what are the causes of success in relationships, of non-success, what's the difference between short versus long-term mating, all these different kinds of things. And I got very immersed in that field and suddenly realized that the same insight Mayer and Salve had early on about emotional research not being connected with I had the same insight essentially about mating, that mating psychology is this juggernaut in psychology, is this huge body of research, as is intelligence, and no one had ever really connected these before. Um, so I worked with Jeffrey Miller, who's a psychologist at the University of New Mexico, to do uh, um, an edited book on this topic, and we started seeing that it was just fertile ground. Um, this was a great area for, if you're a young psychological researcher, there's so much that you can look at. Um, and then I found Scott pretty soon in the process, and we started developing ways to measure mating intelligence. But to get back to your specific question of what is mating intelligence, it's essentially the cognitive processes that relate to relationship uh, and mating psychology. So when we're thinking about ourselves in a, in, a, in a mating context, how do you rate your own mate value? How do you assess the mate values of others? How do you detect honesty versus deception in, in the mating domain? Um, and all these kinds of cognitive decisions comprise what we call mating intelligence. Awesome. So, Scott, um, Glenn kind of touched on this a little bit uh, on some of the sciences uh, that are involved with mating intelligence or the research. Can you talk a little bit more about the research that's involved or the branches of science that's involved uh, that you guys look to for your insights that you talked about in mating intelligence? Sure. I think that uh, – so Glenn and I met each other in um, – about 2005, 2006, and I think that our research interests have complemented each other well and made this uh, book and this construct um, all the richer. Um, because I was primarily interested in creativity and intelligence, traditionally defined, you know, this IQ aspect. What is that? But also I was interested in, in artistic displays of creativity and all the various ways that we can display our creativity. And when I heard about this mating intelligence construct, and then I read The Mating Mind by Jeffrey Miller, which is a really key book that I recommend to all your readers as a, um, if they're uh, interested in this topic, in addition to reading our book, is that these displays of creativity and displays of our personality were constantly signaling to others who we are and our underlying traits and underlying um, uh, genes, which is all very important from an ultimate Darwinian reproductive perspective. What are we? What's the likelihood we're going to pass on some of these traits to our children? Uh, what's the, the extent to which that's going to allow them to survive and um, and and um, attract mates themselves? So in in doing that, you can cast in understanding what those quote sexy traits are. You can cast a very broad net that goes far beyond physical attraction. 
two things like creativity, humor, um, personality. We differ in lots of dimensions of personality, and each one of them impacts on meeting success. Um, to um, what we discussed in the book called the Life History Strategy, which is also really, um, really um, important and relevant. That is to the extent to which you live sort of the fast life. Um, are you very impulsive? Do you have, are you interested in, in uh, quantity over quality of meats? Um, or do you live more of the slow life? Um, and these are actual biological sources of variation that you see in lots of other animals. It's very, um, uh, there's a lot of continuity with um, other species and things. All these things impact, and um, all these aspects of psychology uh, play a role in understanding mating intelligence. Awesome. So, um, so it sounds like there's biology you're looking to, you're looking to uh, psychology, and then evolutionary psychology. <clears throat> Can, can you guys, I mean, I'm sure for some of my readers who have never heard of evolutionary psychology, can you guys kind of give the Cliff Notes version of that? I mean, what, what I, I think a lot of people are familiar with biological. Um, like evolutionary yeah, biology. Yeah, but not psychology. Yeah. yeah um, the, uh, I've been, been teaching a course titled Evolutionary Psychology here at SUNY New Paltz for, for oh gosh, probably about a decade now. Um, and I think you're right that a lot of people don't really know what it is, and, and the phrase is, is something that doesn't necessarily um, capture what it is to, to people when they hear about it. So I guess I'll give you the, the Cliff Notes version. It, the way that I put it, the short version is that evolutionary psychology is the idea that human behavior is part of the natural world. Um, so that's kind of just to think about a very brief version. What is an evolutionary psychologist? Someone who's studying human behavior, understanding that human behavior just like the human body, just like the bodies of other organisms and other animals, all result from Darwinian forces such as sexual and natural selection. And when we think about those basic Darwinian forces, what they do is they facilitate replication of certain forms. Um, so a very short version of evolution is that evolution is a process by which some forms are more likely to be replicated compared with others. So we can think of the evolution of life. We can think of um, a, a, a finch with a certain beak uh, in the Galapagos as being more likely to survive and reproduce and pass on that trait compared with the other forms. But we can think of anything, um, anytime there's competition, there's multiple forms with some are going to exist in the future compared with others. Forms that replicate, forms that get themselves into the future will be more likely to exist in the future by definition compared with alternative forms. Applied to psychology, it essentially says that psychological processes and behavioral patterns of a species like ours that came about by evolution largely serve the function of facilitating survival. Um, so if we can think about like a basic some basic finding that's, that's been found in evolutionary psych. Um, men tend to find women with a curvy, um, what they call a 0.7 waist to hip ratio, relatively attractive. It turns out that that preference for that waist to hip ratio is cross-cultural. It's been documented across different cultures. It's easy for people to reliably um, make a determination, quickly make a determination on attraction. That um, There's research showing that the, that judgment uh, seems to be rooted in certain parts of the brain. So this is um, Steve Platek has documented that particular finding. And on the other side, it's related to fertility. So women that have that relatively um, curvy waist to hip ratio are more likely to be in the fertile years. So that ratio after puberty, you tend to see the curves with menopause, the curves tend to go away. So it's related to hormones. It's related to actual fertility. 
within a fertile population, women that have that waist to hip ratio or close to it are more likely to be able to get pregnant. They're less likely to have pregnancy related complications. So that, um, that mating preference on the part of males that seems to be evolved, that seems to be cross-cultural, that psychological preference maps onto something that facilitates reproductive success. And so it's that fit between uh, psychological qualities on the one hand and how they ultimately serve as a tool to get genes into the future on the other. This is sort of the very basic idea, I'd say, of evolutionary psychology. Interesting. So you talk about some of the physical attributes, right? Uh, for men mm-hmm. being attracted to women, there's that ratio. Uh, you also mentioned in the book uh, about you know hair, like the type of hair a woman has, the shape of her eyes, because uh, all those things indicate age, right? Whether they're yeah. fertile or not. And then with uh, women to being attracted to men, you know, sort of the stereotypical thing is like tall, dark, and handsome, right? Is that sort of the... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I'd say that's, that's partly it. Okay. Um, there, there's also a lot more than just the physical. And I think one of the things we're trying to do in our book is we, we summarize that research on physical qualities that are attractive. And we go through the evolutionary reasoning of why those uh, qualities in men and women are attractive about body attributes and social attributes that are also attractive and that may be just as critical in helping people find and secure um, strong and, and solid mates for themselves. All right. So Scott, that, that's kind of where you came in too. You talk, you're, you're an expert in creativity um, and you talk about how creativity is one of those attributes that uh, both men and women find attractive to each other. And you actually, you argue in the book that, you know, things like art, and uh, music were sort of developed or we evolved those things to attract mates, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I've, I've been conducting some um, research with my colleagues on this topic even since the book has been released. Um, I've been working on some papers um, that's making me more and more confident. Obviously, in science, you never get at the truth, um, but you're always getting either support for something or not support for something. But I'm, I'm starting to realize that the sexiness aspect of the arts and um, and like um, displays of creativity, like entertainers and like Mick Jagger, you know these stereotypical people who get lots and lots of mates, is the emotions that they're eliciting from the perceiver. So it um, we did this study um, where we had people rate a whole bunch of creative behaviors. Um, just simply say how likely, how sexy do you find this behavior? Like how how likely would you be to have sex with this person if they show this behavior? We, and we gave them a whole gamut of behaviors. And we found a ranking literally from the most, um, uh, the aspects like, so actually the number, do you want to know what the number one sexiest behavior was? It actually shocked us a little bit. What's that? I took my date on a spontaneous road trip. <laughs> I, I think that's really interesting. I, I, we weren't expecting Got that. It was down. Like, yeah. Number one. Number one. Um, but it does, I think there is something telling about that because all of the ones at the top, by the way, men and women, there was 100% overlap in the top five. So there wasn't sex, they, both males and females agreed that, that, so what the thing that was in common, it seemed to be, um, the extent to which spontaneity was a key aspect of it, okay? So not like I deliberately planned, but more of I, I sort of let myself go emotionally with this. But also there are things like I sing in a band, I, um, um, you know, I record, write music, so obviously music was one of them, um, but expression, like um, paint, um, things of that nature. But I think that we, we're arguing the thing that, that kind of makes all the, the thing that binds all together is these are things that um, you make some sort of connection with the other person, with the perceiver. 
and you're also displaying that you have some sort of skill or trait or talent that does have a genetic basis and that can be passed on. You know, it's a very subconscious level. Um, you're you're being drawn to this to a certain extent because your your genes are screaming, "Oh, I'm going to have a child who is also going to be able to do world class art like this." That <laughs> makes sense. Yeah, that make, yeah. that does make sense. I mean, here this raises a question too. Now, is this when you're talking about uh, attraction? Is this for like, is this short term attraction or is this long term attraction? Because I, I know this was a theme throughout the book that both men and women have different mating strategies. They're they're thinking short term and long term. So, is this creativity like you know going after the guy, the lead singer in the band? Um, is do women find that sort of thing attractive for like a short term fling or is that they're looking, they see that guy, that guy'd be a great dad. Cause when I think, when I think of Mick Jagger, I don't think of him like as, you know, the paragon in fatherhood, but uh, he is uh, by all measures from what I taught, what I've heard is he's an attractive guy or not so much anymore, but he was in his prime. Right. I mean, you're, you ask a great question. All the research that's been conducted, most of the research that has been conducted to date um, shows that uh, artistic success predicts number of sexual partners within the last 12 months. Um, that's what I found with um, uh, Melanie Bissar and uh, James Kaufman. Um, but there's also uh, the, the, the higher the skill, the more likely they are for number of sexual partners. So that may occur theme is number of sexual partners. However, James Kaufman and uh, his graduate student found that, um, that passion, sustaining um, uh, passionate relationship and um, and mutual uh, creativity did predict um, the length of relationship. I think the nature of the creativity changes from more of a oh a displaying aspect to more of a mutual sort of um, engagement in it. But I think that um, it has a different flavor. Creativity has a different flavor for short term and long term. Interesting. Interesting. So I mean, um, so, let's talk about that a little bit more about the long term, short term. So, do men and women have uh, similar or different long-term, short-term strategies, or are they about the same? That, you really, that's a really that's a controversial topic. Yeah, <laughs> it is a controversial topic. Our, our one of our collaborators and close friends, Justin Garcia, um, has a very specific answer to that. What he'll say is that, and his research kind of supports this, that uh, that females don't really have a short-term mating strategy. Um, that when we see, and there's, it's, it's a controversial idea, but I guess I'll compartmentalize talking about females first. <clears throat> when we look at female uh, mating strategies, when women do engage in short-term mating, so one-night fling or um, dress promiscuously, um, looking for what looks to us like short-term mating, there's interesting research suggesting that that very commonly is something of, a, I guess, a ploy to try to turn into a long-term mateship. Um, so the hooking up research on, uh, that Justin has done, uh, Melanie Hill in my department and I have collaborated with him along with several other folks, but it, it essentially is like, have you hooked up? Describe the hookup. What kind of activities did you do on your hookup? Um, what did you think it was going to lead to? What were you expecting to get out of it? And one of the most intriguing things is that um, both men and women actually were more likely than expected to say, I was hoping to actually date the person. I was hoping it was going to last. But about 70 or 80 percent of women will say that. Um, so what looks like a short-term mating strategy for females sometimes may actually be part of a, um, an alternative route to a long-term mating strategy. Um, for, for males, we definitely can compartmentalize um, when you ask 
a man, what are you looking for in a short-term fling versus what are you looking for in a wife, you do get very different kinds of answers. Um, you do tend to see that looks kind of always matter, but in a short-term fling, looks matter a bit more. Um, things like emotional stability matter a lot more in a long-term relationship, not so much in a short-term relationship. Um, so there, there's definitely there's definitely a discrepancy there, but it does seem to look a little bit differently for males and females. Additionally, there's the effect of ovulation, which is obviously primarily a female endeavor. Um, when females are, are peak ovulation, and, and there's just a landslide of research coming out on the effects of the ovulatory cycle, um, when females are at peak ovulation, they're, they're very different than when they are at other parts in their cycle. Um, and a lot of this speaks to uh, mating strategies. They're more likely to, um, to initiate sexual relations. They are more likely to show um, sig sexual signals. Um, if they're dancing, there's been research on dance clubs, they move more, they dance more, they dress more provocatively. Um, there's one study that was done where they um, had a graph paper with like a little silhouette of a dress or a body and it said, draw the dress you're going to wear tonight. And women who were at peak ovulation uh, drew clothes that were so small that the number of boxes on the graph paper was much fewer than the number of boxes for the woman who was not ovulating. Um, so ovulation seems to be a major factor that seems to play into female psychology. Interestingly, and we talk about this in the book, it ends up having effects on male psychology as well, sort of as a result. So men seem to unconsciously be able to detect aspects of ovulation. When a woman is ovulating, uh, men respond to them differently. Men rate their voices as more attractive. Men rate their scent as more attractive. Um, and men will rate them as more physically attractive in terms of both their face and, and their body. So that seems to be a factor, um, the, an important factor that seems to affect both male and Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. So I use Fast Growing Trees to order not an indoor tree, but an outdoor tree. There is an oak tree that was in our front yard that died a few years ago due to heat stress. Had to cut it down. There's been a blank spot that I wanted to put another tree there. I wanted a maple tree that turned bright red during the fall. And I went on Fast Growing Trees, found the tree that fit the 
criteria that I was looking for turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try fast-growing trees, right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code MANLINESS at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using code MANLINESS at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code MANLINESS, offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Email uh, mating strategies. Um, can I add something real quick? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, some cutting edge research has come out very recently showing that vice versa, um, women, both men and women can smell the personality, certain personality traits in um, the opposite sex. And it's most pronounced when they're when there are smelling the like the the, t- the used T-shirts of an opposite sex, suggesting there is some sort of mating aspect of this, um, particularly traits such as dominance um, and neuroticism and extroversion are um, can be smelled. Interesting. Also, by the Strenuous Life, the Strenuous Life is an online platform that we created to help you put into action the things we've been writing about on theartofmanliness.com and talking about on the podcast for the past ten years. And we've done that in a few ways. First. We create a series of 50 different badges based around 50 different skills. There's hard skills like self-defense, wilderness survival, orienteering, auto repair. And then there's also soft skills like personal finances, social skills, how to be a better public speaker, better husband, better father. We also provide daily accountability for physical fitness and doing a good deed, helping you think outside of yourself. Then we also provide weekly challenges that are going to push you outside of your comfort zone physically, mentally, and socially. And 
Some of the weekly challenges involve MoveNet. So if you like the MoveNet thing, it's interesting to you. Well, Serenius Life will have you doing some of that stuff. If you like to know when our next enrollment opens up, which is happening the week of June 15th, but you want to be the, one of the first to know when enrollment opens up, head over to strenuouslife.co, put your name on our waiting list. We'll send you an email when enrollment opens up. When you sign up, make sure you whitelist our email in your email provider so the email doesn't go to spam. That happens to few people and they miss out. We've done everything we can to prevent that from going to spam, but take that extra step, whitelist us so that doesn't happen. Strenuouslife.co. Hope to see you in the next enrollment the week of June 15th. And now back to the show. So, do you do you guys know? Is there any research on how uh, hormonal birth control has affected that sort of stuff? Because I, I think I've read somewhere that uh, because when more women are, are on birth control, like you know the pill, uh, they're finding they don't find masculine faces as attractive. They're, they find more like you know boyish looking or feminine faces more attractive than say the masculine faces. Is that is there something sure. to that? I got to jump in there just because my uh, my graduate student, Rebecca Newmark, who's studying exactly that topic, um, just finished data collection on about 600 women and just started analyzing data this week. And she came to my office very excited the other day. We have a lot of analyses to do, but the, I'll give you her hypothesis. I'll give you some of the brief analyses. I hope Rebecca's going to be okay with me um, divulging some of that here. But the, the, there's so much research, Brett, um, that triangulates, that kind of points toward this idea that women on hormonal contraception um, are different in a lot of ways than, than other women. And the research has kind of been piecemeal, kind of showing they're different in this venue, they're different in this, this area. And what, she, what she's doing is giving out, um, she gave out a measure of, are you on hormonal contraception or not? If you are, what kind? So she's measuring the different kinds. Um, and she is comparing them across an entire battery of personality um, and social and cognitive kinds of measures. With the, the basic prediction is that women who are on hormonal contraception are going to be more likely to be long-term mating strategists and more likely to, be, to have a more positive social female network is one of her predictions. Um, they're less likely to show indices of promiscuity. They're less likely to be attracted to sort of a bad guy kind of image. And the very brief analysis that, that she has, has uncovered has, has really confirmed or supported this particular hypothesis. And when we think about that at a societal level, it becomes very intriguing because if hormonal contraception has a very discernible effect on a broad array of social and personality kinds of traits for millions and millions of women, that affect and and those traits all have been shown to affect mate selection. That's got an interesting implication. That kind of means that you've changed the face of society and changed the face of the future of the society, because the people, the guys that are being picked as mates, they're in a different game right now. It's like they're in a whole whole other ball field where the rules are different, um, and it's just an unwitting outcome associated with biotechnology. Hmm. So this, this kind of this is a good segue to the next question. I, I, there's, you guys are probably aware of <clears throat> like pickup artists, right? There's this whole like underground. It's not so underground anymore, but these guys who are dedicated to learning about you know mating intelligence, I guess, um, and they seem to use evolutionary psychology to back up their approaches. Um, uh, is, is there anything? I mean, is there any truth to what they say, or are they playing a different game? Um, that you refer to, Glenn? I mean, does, does pickup artist stuff work, I guess is the question I'm asking. Scott, I know you, you studied this aspect a bit. Why don't you maybe take a crack at it? 
Yeah, I think it's a really, I think that could be a whole other podcast, you know, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, because that is a, it's a very interesting topic. I, um, I've, d- I've done research um, about, um, uh, about this sort of topic. Um, I've seen the techniques they use up front, you know, I've gone to their summits and uh, have observed this. I think that they, they do, I think it's a mixed bag. I think that um, there's a lot of diversity in what a lot of them are selling, you know, a lot of the technique, techniques are selling, but I think, I'll just say some of the things that I think are on the right track. Um, I think, you know, a lot of them advocate the use of um, witty um, chat-up lines, as I guess they call them in Scotland, pickup lines, right? Um, and I think there is evidence supporting that is very important, having sort of increasing your spontaneity and ability to um, be contextually appropriate and say things that are funny um, on the spot and uh, make, make yourself just generally look more interesting. You know, there's lots of aspects. I see, I saw and I observe another major aspect of that community um, is, is sort of overcoming approach anxiety. I think that I would actually classify the, the large majority of what they're really doing if you really cut beneath the surface is, is helping shy guys um, be more confident in, um, and being more proactive and assertive in, in, in their uh, mating goals. Most of them, their mating goals are short-term. That is something I, I definitely noticed. Um, in fact, I, at one of these seminars, I saw someone, um, actually a homosexual individual, raise his hand, and he said, um, I'm here, and I was wondering if you're going to have anything to say about how to have a long-term relationship. And I, I think the guy running the seminar was like, that's not why we're here. You know, and he was just like, he's like, I'm going to be honest, you're at the wrong seminar. Um, that might have just, that might not generalized all of the pick of ours community, but that really, that really struck me, you know, because I, you know, I was like, interesting. So, I mean, they have a very clear goal, right? These, um, at least at this summit, I specific summit I went to. But I think, um, so I think there are some, some things that are backed up. But I do see some things that I think are not in line. I think they're more wishful thinking or more of like, there's a lot of misogyny that I see in that field um, coming out of that uh, from some individuals. I think it's a very diverse thing, you know, the pickup artist field. There's lots of people, like I said, with different methods. But I do see a lot of people, um, I sense an undercurrent of, like, there's a lot of anger coming from, like, people, a lot of guys who have been rejected, and and they almost have this attitude of, like, well, I want to get back at women by sleeping with as many as I can and then rejecting them all. It's sort of like a, uh, and I think it's a whole different level. I think that there's a psychological motive there that is um, where it's unhealthy. And it's definitely not conducive to ever finding a long-term meet. And I think that if your goals are really some day in life to settle down with someone meaningful, you know, like become like a Brett McKay, um, <laughs> if that is your ultimate goal is to actually have a, a, a serious, um, uh, playful relationship with a, a woman, um, all the research suggests that vulnerability is a good thing. You know, it's, it's okay to not put on this like super macho um, and I think that's something you're doing with your website, right? You're trying to kind of conceive of manliness in not a, such a stereotypical sort of um, false alpha beta way. Am I, am I right? That's one of the goals of your yeah, website. Yeah, for sure. And that actually leads, segue to another another question. So this whole alpha beta, that's alpha beta male thing. That's a very common thing amongst the pick art, pickup artist scene. And they talk about, well, if you want to attract women, you got to be dominant. Right. You got to you got to show her who's the boss, you know, show her who's daddy or I don't know, whatever they say. I think that's wishful thinking again on, on a lot of their parts. They yeah. have this fantasy world where you know, I think there's a lot of narcissism going on there as well. Right. That's how they view the world as I'm, you know, I'm the, the ruler. But that's not that's not that's not the reality, in fact, um, which is the prestige distinction that we make in the book. Um, the prestigious man 
is what women seem to actually want. Um, if you actually listen to women, if you actually care about, if you actually care, do lots of interviews and studies where you actually listen to what women really want, um, it is more of a mix of um, sensitivity and assertiveness, not dominance, but assertiveness. And it is a very subtle distinction, but it's a very important distinction because I think it gets um, very confused in this, this false alpha-beta dichotomy. Um, dominance is, um, you know, your say, everything you say, it's your way or no way, right? But assertiveness is being honest and, and even vulnerable about what you want out of life and what your goals are. And women find that aspect immensely sexy. Assertiveness combined with um, sensitivity. Um, it seemed like the big thing that women didn't like are pushovers um, and, um, and, and men and, and, and ultra shy men. So to that, that does seem to be bad. Um, the, the research does seem to bear that out. So the extent to which these pick ours things do help men um, at least come off as more confident and assertive about what they want, not dominant, um, I think that that actually can help them in the mating domain. Does that make sense? That, that makes, <laughs> makes perfect sense. So let's, let's talk about this. Um, maybe one of you guys have insights into this. How does culture play and effects. You've talked about studies that show some of these attributes that we're attracted in, you know, men and women are attracted in each other are cross-cultural, but does culture affect, uh, what we find attractive in the opposite sex? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think it definitely does. Um, and this is as an evolutionary psychologist, this is a very big question that we are asked often. And I think one that we need to take very seriously um, and it kind of goes back to your question also, I guess, if I can connect it with that, the topic of the pickup artist, you know, as, as someone who's been teaching evolutionary psych for a long time, but also someone who I, I see myself as, um, as an academic is trying to be relatively socially proactive, um, trying to teach my students at SUNY New Paltz, you know, go do great things, make this world a better place. When I hear evolutionary psychology get a bad rap of, oh, that's, um, teaching people to be selfish and to do what's what's for their own um, selfish ends, it's, it, it's, it's tough for me, to be honest. And if, if you look at my, my um, publication record, I've, including in, in this book with Scott, I've published lots of things where I'm essentially trying to make the case that we can use the science of evolutionary psychology for lots of positive pro-social purposes. Um, so when I hear things like people who are in the pickup artist community, I mean, this is just me personally, when I, when I hear, oh, we're, we're using the science so that we can exploit women, and I think you do hear a little bit of that, that's that's um, that's that's pretty unpleasant for me to think about, to be honest. Um, so, it, I think that any scientific area, any body of knowledge, can be used for various purposes. Um, and to the extent that we, as moral beings, have a similar kind of set of goals, it's it's nice to use what we learn um, from science and from other similar kinds of fields to help work toward uh, the same sort of positive pro-social goals. Um, kind of relates to the idea of culture. So culture is, is um, speaking to rules that are sort of specific to communities um, that are different from how they play out in other communities. So um, you, the question of cultural variability is really very crucial. Now, on one hand, you see enormous cultural variability. So the way that, that we're dressed today, we're wearing like shirts or just t-shirt, like you're going to dress very differently in another culture. Um, rules about about language, rules about children and how to deal with children and marriage. The rules just vary from dramatically from place to place on the one hand. On the other hand, I guess this is where the universal nature of um, 
evolved tendencies comes into play. On the other hand, the rules are about the same kind of stuff. So while, for instance, you have religions in different cultures that, that look remarkably different from one another, they tend to have things like, here's a ritual about childhood, here's a ritual about birth, here's a ritual about having someone defined as part of your in-group, um, here's the rules about marriage, here's the rules about extended family, here's the rules about feeding, um, here's our ritual for marriage is different from place to place, but we all have a ritual regarding marriage which connects the couple into the broader fabric of a, a community. So when you talk about culture, it's always very important to, to understand that a lot of times when things look very different, they're manifestations of the same underlying universal evolutionary principle. Um, so I think when we think about human mating, a lot of things um, like music. So Scott was talking about how attractive musicians are. And musicians, a good musician in North America now compared to someone in South America 300 years ago might be doing something incredibly different and would sound very different. But it still is, wow, that person's on task, that person's charismatic, that sounds awesome, that gets people up and dancing. Um, so I think that there's a real important universal element to, to culture that we need to be aware of as well. Uh, well, Can I add to that? Yeah, go ahead, Scott. I'm just going to riff on this topic a little bit because it's something I think a lot about. I think about you know the way the, the, the language we use in in, uh, in, the, in the field is that culture can amplify evolved tendencies. So some things can appear. Um, we, we can we can be um, fooled into thinking that some exaggerated traits evolved to be that exaggerated when they didn't. When they, maybe the predisposition was was something completely separate, but culture kind of played on that to such an exaggerated degree that it has become something that never intended to, um, and that is uh, can be unfortunate sometimes. You see that with models. You see that with runaway sexual selection, where models think they need to be skinnier and skinnier when the actual mate preference is not that skinny. You see that in the use of, use of pornography. Um, you know, there you can culture can highlight. Um, you know, certain sexual practices, things that um, it almost becomes where, where women and men feel pressure to um, perform certain things that, that um, um, have been amplified much higher than, um, uh, than wherever intended. Um, um, you see that, and you see that in lots of different aspects of culture. I could go on and on and on, but um, I think that culture, um, we, we as a society can choose what we want to, we have lots of evolved aspects. We have lots of competing modules within us, lots of competing drives, you know, some um, more moral than others. So we have lots of, we're complex, but culture can make that decision what you want to highlight and then what you want to amplify. Does that make sense? That, make, that makes perfect sense. Um, kind of a related question is to culture. Um, how does, how has technology affected young people's mating intelligence? Because for me personally, like, you know, I'm, I'm 30 years old, but I interact with a lot of guys who are in their you know, early 20s. And I know a lot of these guys, they just seem sort of socially awkward. And I know, you know, the sociality is an aspect of mating intelligence and they're just, they're struggling. And I don't know if it's because they're, you know, they've grown up behind a, a keyboard and a computer screen. Has that affected mating intelligence or, or has it stunted mating intelligence or do, are young people just adapting uh, their mating intelligence to this new world? Glenn might be in trouble here, so hold on. <laughs> no, I think I'm good. I don't recognize the number, so I'm good. Uh, <laughs> I thought you got in trouble. Never. 
So yeah, I mean, what how what role does technology play? Like you know, social media and computers and texting. Does that has that does that play a role? Has that changed mating intelligence in any way, or changed how people use their mating intelligence? That's a great. It's a great question, and I think as we as things move forward, that's going to become a more and more important question regarding pretty much any topic that we're that we'll be discussing in the future um, at the rate that technology is moving. There's two important things about it, I guess, Brett, that I that I'm hearing you raise. One is that. Um, and I have, I have two kids who love their little iPad kind of things, you know, so I know exactly what you're talking about and it's a struggle and every parent has the same struggle. You know, you, you bump into parents like, oh yeah, the electronic devices, you know, but they're, it's, it's my next door neighbor, Ed calls it like a drug. Like these kids say, you got the iPhone and what are you doing? I'm on the iPhone. How long are you going to be on that? Six, seven hours. It is remarkable. Um, and part of it is because those, you know, the, those technologies exploit our evolved tendencies. They exploit our interests. We're interested in social connections. Um, the social connections are crucial to human survival and reproduction. That's why Facebook um, and all those kinds of things are so incredibly successful. So on one hand, we, we see these technologies and people are, are overusing them and people are growing up on them now. So I just saw someone on Facebook, a friend of mine posted today, she said, um, when my mom called me, she would yell out the window and call for me. And I was outside playing. It was a very simple little statement, but it's such a distinction now between um, the percentage of time that people are, are on their little electronic devices. If you spend your first 20 years on electronic devices, is that going to make you into someone who's different socially than you would be otherwise? Absolutely. I mean, I think that that's, that's got to be the case. Um, so I think that's a really important point. And you know, I think one of the things as evolutionists, we tend to think about the importance of living in as natural a way as you can, thinking back to what were the conditions like under which human evolution took place. We certainly didn't have iPhones. We didn't have anything like that. Um, you know, we were outside. We were exercising. We were eating non-processed foods. We were engaging in interactions that were playful with the same individuals that we saw on a regular basis. Um, that's what the human mind was evolved to to be exposed to. So I think that technology definitely has its ups and downs, but from, from an evolutionary perspective, I think it is, it is concerning. And, and what you're saying about some awkward guys in their twenties, I think in the future, we'll expect probably more awkward guys in their, in their twenties. Um, and as, I guess the second point that I'll just kind of put out there real quick is that it changes self-presentation. So, so much about mating is about I'm presenting myself. So if, if, if there's someone who's going to meet, I want to go meet someone at a bar, um, they would go and they would, you know, talk to people and maybe dance and maybe talk to that person's friends. The music's loud, so they get up close and there's like pheromonal communication and you hear the person's voice and there's like this intimate kind of interaction. And now when you first meet someone, online dating has quickly gone from something that was sort of for weirdos to the standard. And it's unbelievable how that's happened. Well, there's a bunch of things about online dating. Um, if you put up an online profile, my best guess is that you put it up and you look at it and you say, got to change that. I said this, I meant to say that, got to change that. Or the lighting isn't good, let me, let me redo that. Or if you write a statement, you're going to say your, to your best friend or maybe even to your mom, mom, does this sound about right? Is this the right thing? Um, you probably shouldn't check with your mom, by the way, just check just, with Brad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Check with me or Scott. Um, but, uh, but, and then, so then when you finally get your first, your first presentation of yourself out there, it may have gone through hours and hours of editing. Um, and what person, what someone's going to see is the best possible photo of you, 
with this incredibly, hopefully incredibly well-written presentation of yourself with a video of you that makes you seem smart, easygoing, all the things that you're capable of being one minute a day. You know, I mean, it does, it's such a, everything has been raised because everything on online dating, and this is what technology has done, every single thing there is a person's absolute optimized presentation of self. And that is evolutionarily unprecedented in human mating. So, so I think something we got to think about. Yes. I mean, it sounds like you would have to, I mean, one of the mating skills you talk about, mating intelligence skills you talked about in the book is deception, being able to detect deception. And maybe that's one of the things that, that people are going to have to like change the way they detect deception. Because yeah, you, you, when you modify an online profile, you're not necessarily lying, but you're doing a lot of puffery, you know, like puffing what you look like. And it's not exactly the whole image. So like people, you know, if you meet somebody, a woman would have to be like, okay, is this guy really what he says he is on his online profile or is he completely not, not this at all? Right. Can I, can I defend um, this new world a little bit for a second? Sure. Um, there, there's some potentially positive aspects um, that, that can, you can really capitalize on for increasing your mating intelligence. Um, something that, that concerns me a lot in my research is understanding different kind of minds. There are some kind of minds that, tend to be more, quote, socially awkward, like people with Asperger's, um, which is high-functioning autism. I think in this new world, um, you see a lot of opportunities for people who, um, you know, have trouble looking people in the eye, who have trouble... Well, I, I suspect some, even some people you deal with are on the autism spectrum, These uh, people that you would describe as socially awkward, but this actually gives them a chance to display... It is their, their, their true self or the self they really want to express really might be hiding inside and might, and, and might not be given an opportunity on, um, in this sort of pressure bar environment where they don't do well or, or this pre- in the world where you have, to, you have like this four or five second window. I mean, there's a lot of pressure um, for guys and for males and females in these sort of real life short term you know, situations where you meet someone. It's like you have a couple seconds to give your best impression and who in the world can really give their entire, you know, unless you are this you know, making someone attractive to you, but most of us aren't, right? And um, to really, and, and most of us don't want to, you know, kind of manufacture something. So I think that um, some of these opportunities will afford people opportunities that they didn't have before to really express their true witty selves. Very interesting. Um, so let's let's talk about this. Is we've talked about a lot of high level, you know, kind of what mating intelligence is, and some of the research that talks about mating intelligence, but let's get practical here. I mean, is it possible to improve your mating intelligence? And if so, what are some things that, you know, guys who are listening right now, uh, and a lot of these guys are in college, I mean, and young, and they're looking for a relationship, what can they do now to improve their mating intelligence? Um, that, that, I think that's a really good question. I think it speaks to the utility of, of all the work that Scott and I did in this book. Um, one of the one of the bottom lines is that you gotta you gotta think about presentation. I guess that's one of the things that that matters. I mean, people naturally do that, but but the way that you come across to a mate, you gotta think about the potential um, things that are are underscored by potential mates. So if if you're a young guy looking for a woman, well, you might you might find it useful to know that the number one thing women care about is mutual love and respect, and followed right behind that is kindness in a partner. Um, and so there's a whole bunch of other qualities that are like, these are some of the qualities that a lot of times get lost in the mix so that you, you hear, and this is accurate, that relatively muscular men are attractive, relatively dominant men are attractive, 
These things are all true. But additionally, one of the things that we, we go on in detail about in our book is altruistic men are attractive and, and kind men and men who show empathy and um, and listen well and, and show sort of um, good ability to connect emotionally. So I think that that showing showing signs of these and, and essentially working to um, to to demonstrate all those kinds of qualities in a genuine kind of way, I think that these are things that would that would go a long way toward improving mating intelligence and helping people better better connect with potential mates. Excellent, Scott. Do you have any 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 parting advice? Yeah, I, I think that this this picture of the prestigious man that we um, we paint in this book is uh, takes a lot of the different aspects of mating intelligence and. Um, together in this one package, and uh, Glenn mentioned most of the things. Um, some additional things are um, developing some sort of culturally valuable skill or knowledge, not focusing entirely on the target of the mate, but also, but but first and foremost on yourself and and developing yourself as a human being, so that you can genuinely express this aspect to others. And um, that is something that we talk about deception and things. Well, one of the number one deal breakers is when a mate feels the person has completely deceived them in terms of who they are. So the, the best thing is to, is to develop these positive things authentically. I think that's very important. Yeah. yeah. Very good. Sure. Well, Scott Glenn, thank you so much for your time. This has been a, just a fascinating discussion and it's a fascinating book. And uh, I highly recommend all of you who are listening right now to go out and pick it up. It's, it's a great read. Um, you're going to pick up a lot of useful information and a lot of stuff that'll make you just, it's, it's good. It's also good, like cocktail party fodder. I feel like, you know, you can bring up, Hey, did you know that this is what's attractive? But great book. Uh, thank you again, guys. Oh, thank you so much, Brett. We enjoyed it. Our guests today were Dr. Glenn Gear and Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. They are the authors of the book Mating Intelligence Unleashed, The Role of the Mind in Sex, Dating, and Love. And you can find their book on Amazon.com. That wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And until next time, stay manly. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.